Hello, AOC listener, and Happy New Year! We're finally back after our holiday break, and we can't wait to get going! As always, this episode will be full of spoilers, and we also prepared a little mood board for y'all. Snuggle up in your most dramatic cloak, or a blanket if a cloak isn't available, light your fireplace, or a candle if a fireplace isn't available, and put on some moody tabletop ASMR. Let's get epic! Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, a comic book creator who has recently been quite ill. He's probably still quite ill and may just fall asleep in the middle of this recording, so please forgive my brain. Hi, I'm Joss Stone, and uh, that's it. That's the energy I'm bringing today. Bianca, teenage apprentice to an infamous arcane blacksmith, is forced to flee her homeland and seek out Atlas, a fabled land of light ruled by the clean god. She is joined by the mysterious guardian spirit known only as the Bird King. Together they will have to overcome dozens of enemies to reach Atlas, and along the way unravel the mystery of the Bird King and their ancestral connection. And am I right in thinking this is volume one of an ongoing series that we're doing here, so it's a sort of a setup that we're reviewing rather than the whole story? Yeah, I do believe volume two is out, and I actually almost purchased it because I assumed that I would really enjoy volume one, and now in hindsight, I am kind of glad I just stuck to volume one. Right. So I was getting this sort of vibe when we were talking about this. We try not to share too much about how we feel about the comics, but sometimes you just sort of pick up on an energy when we chat about things. I didn't really enjoy this either, and I think this might be the first podcast where we both didn't really enjoy something. Yeah, although I am tempted to say we had somewhat of a similar situation with Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, but we were both so fresh to the game back then, so we were much more hesitant about saying anything negative whatsoever. And even though I'm very glad that to this day we have kept that attitude, we have still dared to branch out and be like, this is why I didn't particularly enjoy X, Y, Z, but that is not necessarily, you know, an objective reflection on anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, that's one theme that we keep on coming back to is this is our opinion and media is very much something that's as much to do with the reader as it is to do with the thing you're reading. So, you know, this is going to be as much about me and Jaws as it is about Bird King. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like I want to do a little read-off straight out the gate that the artist is Krom, the letterer is Michael David Thomas, and the writer is Daniel Friedman. Out the gate, I loved the art on this. Really expressive, really stylish. It's got this sort of indie video game feel, that's how I'd describe it. It reminded me of things like Bastion. It gives me more of a vibe of stuff like, I think it's called Sable, and then you have Rollerdrome, these kind of oh. very flat 2D, 3D looking games. Yeah, yeah, which are both clearly sort of, we want to be Mobius. I, I would say it's definitely got that hyper flat, lean Claire feel that French comics often do. I am honestly very relieved to hear that you enjoyed the art, because I didn't. Oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, I enjoy the art on an aesthetic basis. I didn't enjoy the way the art told the story sometimes. And I think that in a comic, those things are so intimately related that it's hard to talk about the quality of the art without also talking about the quality of the storytelling. 
So I think I was talking about the art on a purely aesthetic basis, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's an excellent point to make. For me, it's still a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Mm, and yeah. my first note is that I sincerely believe this comic would have been better if it was in black and white. I did not enjoy the colors whatsoever. And you know my stand on this already. I am a person who loves black and white comics. I will pick that over color almost any day. And that's just a very personal taste. But in this one, I personally really felt that the colors really didn't aid the art because in the back and this I do love in the back of the comic volume there's a collection of just concept pieces and sketches and paneling and layout processing and VIPs and stuff like that which is always so satisfying to see and here I'm going oh my god this is this is the crisp stuff that I love Chrome for and I immediately recognize the voice and the style there's somewhere between the pages where I feel like this is lost to me and I did quickly connect that for me it has to do with the colors because Chrome is not really a coloring artist in what I normally see from them yeah, I'm flicking through now and I like the palettes that have been chosen. You know, like if, if I were to sample them and, and make some interior decoration out of them, they'd be really nice. But I think you're right that they're not really aiding the storytelling and they're certainly not aiding the clarity of the art a lot of the time. If you flick all the way back to what I'm referring to, you have a page, I wish there were page numbers here, but there isn't. You have a page where up in the left corner, there's the script of the page, then there's the thumbnailing and then all the way from like ink to final and it's the page where she is talking to her friend who's about to join the war that's right yeah and when you look at the black and white page versus the color one it's it's two different ballparks for me yeah just little things like at the bottom right panel the silhouettes work so nicely like the silhouettes of the soldiers in the background really make her friend pop out of the panel whereas in the coloring the color of her hair makes her so recessive that her head sinks into the silhouettes behind her and i think this happens over and over again and when you work in a very heavily blocked out style with dramatic black shadows think like mike mignola from hellboy that kind of vibe mm. i think that very quickly if you work in a darker palette you're kind of not doing your lines a service when you already have such incredible beautiful line art yeah i would love to see a colorless version of this because again, even if you don't mind the change that the colors create, I think you'd have a hard time arguing that it was substantially better than the black and white. Maybe in one mid-tone would have been lovely. Like maybe this black and white with sort of an exact mid-gray or something. Yep. Or, or yep. pick out one key color per page, for mid-green or something like that. Super agree. It's not something I thought about consciously whilst I was reading, but it's interesting to think about now. It's probably different since I've followed this artist for years now and I'm very enamored by their art to the point where I even have like t-shirts with his motifs on. <laughs> now that's interesting for you to sort of really love a creator and then come to their artwork and not sort of have the same experience. Yeah, one thing that really occurred to me, let me just be straight out the gate saying, I recognize that there's obviously a budget thing here. When you look at the art versus his normally very refined illustrations, of course there's budget thing to keep in mind. Yeah. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that he is also an artist that excels at monster designs and maybe doesn't extend the same love to humans. I did like the human designs, but I think I preferred them when they were more abstract, when they were more monstrous. Yeah, like the design of the uh, the big champion who uh, appears around the middle with the very large sword that you have to go and reforge. He's got this great silhouette with a large kind of hat on his head and these three slats down the middle of the hat. 
very successful character design language going on there, but maybe less so with the more human characters. Yeah, and that's kind of what I mean, because you have the titular Bird King is fucking fantastic. Agul, the villain, fantastic. The three assassins that Agul hires, fantastic. There's so mm. much of this delicious, monstrous scrumptiousness. And then the humans, to me, this is again very, very subjective, but to me, they're kind of underwhelming in their presentation. Yeah, and it may be partly because they're set against such fantastic designs. And whilst the humans are kind of really serviceable, I don't think there's anything wrong with them at all, the monster design is excellent. So it's a sort of a matter of comparison. The monster design reminds me a lot of absolute height of 90s anime design around Ninja Scroll, that kind of era with these hyper-large humans and really excellent costume design. I wonder if, if there's any influence from that era. Yeah, it really has that delicious anime-adjacent look to it at times when it comes to the designs, as you mentioned. That also brings me to probably the highest compliment from me regarding this comic, outside of the purely design aesthetics of the monsters. This is the first non-manga comic that I've read for this podcast, where the lettering feels just as beautifully integrated as it would in a manga. It's really nicely placed. I never had a problem with order or, or anything like that. And I did like the use of large sound effects, like sort of super stylish, framing the back of the panel, that kind of thing that was fun. Yeah, and I really appreciate that the lettering is... I mean this with the utmost love. It's imperfect. It's not trying to be super glossy. It serves the effect of the sound it's trying to carry on the page, and it does so beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. The sound effects are often rough and ready in the same way that the art is, and I, I love that kind of reflection, that kind of integration of, of sound effect and artwork. It feels like they've come from the same mind, you know what I mean, rather than just being slapped on top by someone else. Yeah, which is interesting since there is like an external letterer. Yeah, and I wonder whether the letterer did the sound effects or whether the sound effects were done by Chrom, because I would guess they were done by Chrom, but... Oh, I was always under the impression that the letterer did the sound effects. Ooh, well, if so, then absolute kudos, because they are so nicely integrated into the artwork. Is, is that not normally the case? Have I been misled? I always assumed that the letterer did sound effects. Yeah, I mean, quite often they do, but then sometimes they don't. And it depends on the creative team. And because this isn't, you know, your average production line comic of who published this, it's Dark Horse. You know, this feels like a creative team that assembled because they wanted to work together rather than one that was put together by a publisher. In which case I would guess that, you know, they'd want to let the artists do the kind of stuff they wanted to do. It's just so nicely framed. Like I just flicked open one where it's right in the middle of the book. It's right in the middle of a, a pitch battle between several of the characters. There's a cloak flaring out and there's a bash written inside the cloak as it flares and it's just so stylish it's very cool yeah i have a page open at the similar fight because you mean it's when the the group of people show up with the old broken sword for the um, hammer of the north to reforge it right yeah that's the one yeah there's four panels up top with four different characters and the first panel just says clack then second says duel then third says ready and then fourth says payback and I have kind of been under the impression that in Western comics, you are somehow not allowed to write out emotions in sound effects, but I'm a sucker for that. I do that in my own comics. I love when you kind of bring inner monologue or just overstating a situation in the sound effects instead of having a person say it because I think that's much more dorky. 
And this comic does that a lot, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's nice. I think it can be used to brilliant comedic effect as well. There's a particular writer who works for the children's comic that I work at who will quite frequently have sound effects that will just echo something on the page. Like maybe there'll be a duck on the page and the sound effect will just be duck. (laughs) And it makes me giggle every single time. And it's really, again, very, very deftly done. Like the amount of negative space left on the page left of the one that you just pointed out At the bottom of the page, there's a sort of a borderless panel that has smash written behind it. And it's so nicely done because the text is slightly obscured by the illustration. But at no point is the form of the letter unreadable. It's been really nicely placed. And I'd be so surprised if this wasn't the artist themselves considering that in panel. But again, if it's the letterer, then top job. Absolutely top job. Yeah, again, I just assumed that letterer did sound effects, but maybe I'm completely wrong. If anyone knows, let us know. Speaking of the characters, though, we should probably introduce them because, bibbly, this is a doozy. This is a very Mm. cast-heavy story. And if you're remotely like me with a pea brain for names, uh, this is challenging. So we have the main character, Bianca. She is something called a Sintered, which will become essential for the plot later on. Then we have her master who is also referred to as the Hammer of the North, and his name is Thonir. He's also Sintred. Then you have the King of Fetter Hill. Fetter Hill is where they're living. Also the titular Bird King. Then you have Agul, who is the villain. You have Young, who is one of Agul's pathetic little helpers and the only person who survives this first encounter. And then there's Atlas, that they want to travel to after they are kind of projected forward thanks to plot devices and that's still not all the names but these are like kind of the most essential (laughs) so this is one of the things i wanted to talk to you about so dive right in there we've talked a lot before about names and places fantasy Mm -hmm. fantasy that a particular kind of world building creates where people are obsessed with their maps they're obsessed with their names of places and they're obsessed with the lineage of their characters and and the gods and the kings and all that kind of stuff and quite frequently these sorts of stories are front-loaded with you know so and so living in the kingdom of blah de blah needs to travel to the under kingdom of blah de blah where the great war between the king blah de blah and Prince Blah Blah has been raging for 19 million centuries. And, you know, it's it's that kind of storytelling. And you've told me that you really dislike that. How did you get on with that in this? I dislike it because, again, my pea brain just does not compute. So when I read these names, that is exactly what happens where it's, oh, the character Mipdi Mip from the kingdom of Boopdi Boop is going to the place of Mapdi Map. And I'm just... All of these <laughs> names are from namegenerator.org. And I'm sitting here struggling. Can we... Please, for the sake of my stupidity, go back to Sam and Bob and Mike and those kind of names. (laughs) Again, it's very much a me thing. I am not faulting the story for this because the names are very approachable, IMO. Yeah. But there's a lot. And what kind of struck me today, because I finally found back to reading books again after a book burnout last year. Funnily enough, completely coincidental, I have veered into fantasy, which isn't really my genre for the exact reason I just made fun of. I think, all in all, maybe I've been a little hard on fantasy, because I personally don't really enjoy the format in comic books. It requires a lot of exposition that has to be even more efficient in a comic book format because of budgeting and time and all of that. It can very quickly become exposition dumpy, because... 
what in a book can be more braided out over time and you are allowed to just do text because that's a book. In a comic, it can very quickly annoy and or bore me because I'm sitting there, oh, beautiful picture. Oh, okay. And now there's a history lesson. Okay, okay, okay. I was not signing up for this. So as I told you before we started recording, I had to read this twice when I first read it for our initial recording that got postponed. Since on my first read, I didn't register a single fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of static replaces the names and places. Yeah. Uh, oh, I've just got to go and talk to... It, for people who have played Alan Wake, whenever Mr. Scratch's name shows up in the manuscript and it's just like static, harsh noise, that's kind of what's happening in my brain. What's funny is that when I was younger, I was very, very much into this kind of names and places fantasy it was my kind of happy place sort of storytelling yet i still got the names wrong all of the time and learn only years later that i was pronouncing entire continents and people incorrectly in my favorite fantasy series when i started being able to hear interviews with creators and listen to audiobooks and all of that sort of stuff or even just talking to friends who'd read the same thing they'd be like who are you talking about and this wouldn't just be me slightly mispronouncing a name. It would be me effectively making up a name that has some <laughs> of the same letters in. <laughs> Dude, if you have not listened to the audiobooks of the Locked Tomb series, and then you, you talk to someone who has, or vice versa, I listen to all of those books on audiobook, because talk about name generator dot fucking org. <laughs> and then I talk to people who not only have read the books, but they've read them in their native language, not English. And I'm sitting over here going, whomst? I don't know this character. <laughs> this character wasn't mentioned once in the books that I've read. <laughs> that was a uh, fantastic uh, round in a quiz that I did at Christmas, which was, is this a Tolkien character or is it an antidepressant? <laughs> and... It was, I, I, being a huge Tolkien fan, got several of the answers wrong. Oh no! Oh, that's devastating. But to be fair, if you listed of Harrowhawk Nona Jessimus to me, I'd be like, yeah, that's probably an antidepressant. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised by how interchangeable they were. But I think there is a, I sort of go a little deeper into this, because despite the fact that this is the kind of storytelling I actually often gravitate towards, I really like that kind of thing. It didn't grab me in this when you let's assume you've gone all out on it you've done it you've you've made your fantasy map you've made your fantasy language you've come up with unusual completely fictional names for all of your characters i think there's ways and ways to do it and often the ways that work best are when you draw your inspirations from a primary source tolkien's a perfect example of this he was a historian he was a linguist but when he created languages, he really created languages. When he named characters, they all made sense for their cultures and all of that kind of stuff. But there's a sort of a depth that you can go to. And I think that when you're into that sort of thing, that depth and that care really rings true as you read a story. And it provides a sort of a sense of authenticity. But then you get, as you do with visual styles as well, what I think of as a sort of a diluted version of that, where somebody has clearly loved fantasy all their life, but all of the inspirations that they're drawing from are other fantasy novels that they've loved. They haven't gone back to a primary source themselves. And so you get this sort of weirdly diluted, more and more generic feel to material like this. And I think for me, it, f it felt like this had that feeling. 
and apologies to Daniel Friedman if if he did a massive amount of research and went back to lots of primary sources for his inspiration, but it didn't come across for me. Mm, Yeah, I think that's a very strong point and a very, very on the tip of the sword way of putting how this story kind of reads because I most certainly think there's something there. There is something making me curious. This is what's making me wonder if budgeting really played a part in this since, as we know, when you're doing a comic, it's storytelling of the merging of two or more formats. So the art has to carry and the story also has to carry. In this, it kind of feels like a speed run of a fantasy storytelling where it's like, we gotta get to a certain point of the pitch by page Mimamu. And if we're not there by then, then we're losing money or time or whatever. And as the reader, you're just like, it feels like you're kind of marathon running through very important information. And it's kind of slapping you across the face. And you're sitting there a little dazzled afterwards going, yeah, that this is not necessarily the pacing I feel an epic story needs. I mean, there's a reason that Lord of the Rings is a fat fucking Bible. And you could argue that maybe it doesn't need to be that, but I do sincerely think it needs more than this. Yeah, and again, this might be format. I got the impression reading this that this is a collected edition of something that might have been published in a serial way. They look like floppy length issues bound into a collection to me. And given that it's Dark Horse, that's very likely. Yeah, there is. I think this harkens back to something that we've touched upon now and again, why we don't enjoy stuff like Marvel and DC stories. This purely isn't a publishing format that I enjoy, because it always demands that each and every incredibly concentrated chapter carries with it a beginning, mid part, and end, and usually some sort of cliffhanger or punchline or something, and it creates for an awkward reading experience when you then mush them into a hole for me. Yeah, especially when the effect of the hole is clearly one that's tried to bear in mind being a book, because you end up with a sort of a not quite embracing either world effect. Um, Thinking about something like Uzumaki that we talked about a while ago, and that was incredibly episodic. You could feel the publishing format in that, but it also had embraced that it made itself a series of very short interconnected stories with a plot that emerged over time. Whereas this runs on directly, yet it also contains these microstructures of satisfying little arcs. And at the same time, it rushes all of these founding things that if you were just sitting down with a graphic novel, you might want to give more time to, which is, it's a shame because you end up in this, you know, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none situation with your reading experience. That's what I mean, where there were absolute elements that had me going, oh, okay, this is a world that I could be interested in, and these names aren't impossible for me to memorize, and there is something to the characters, as, I mean, I'm a sucker for the titular Bird King, I think he's very cool, mm, and I'm yeah. a, I'm a, as we have established time and time again, ever since Step by Bloody Step, I am a big sucker for the giant, quiet golem character, that's just a trope yeah. that I'm very soft <laughs> for, and also harking back to Step by Bloody step hats fucking off to people who decide to keep putting huge armor pieces in their sequentials where you have to do this over and over again like what's wrong with you but also thank you (laughs) yeah yeah great great volumetric stuff in this really nice sense of continuity despite the very sort of instinctual loose lines i really like that combination of a really lovely 3d feel but that's not too calculated doesn't look like it's been traced over 3d model or something like that 
No, it really carries that imperfect perfection that I'm very envious of people able to pull off. Yeah, absolutely. Going a bit further into some of the storytelling, one of the things that gave me this impression that things hadn't been kind of built out enough in the writer's head were just little things about the main character that just made me stop and think, why is this happening? As an example, the the main character is sort of shunned by everyone around her because of this fact that she is a sintered and her master reveals it to her later and it's a real shock. Yet at the same time, she has all of these history books around her that she's reading voraciously and she seems to have friends out in the world as well. She's got a friend who leaves to go to the front line of the war near the beginning and that sort of dissonance, the fact that she's a free agent who reads widely, who interacts with the people around her enough to make friends, yet is also shunned for a specific reason. She would absolutely know why she was shunned. She would have found out. The shock felt artificial. The landing of the reveal felt artificial to me. I was just like, why didn't we know this beforehand? Why didn't she know this beforehand? How could she possibly have not realised this yet? And there's a sort of a similar thing, like the convenience of moments of plot seemed a little artificial to me. Like, for example, her friend going off to the front lines. Why didn't she know her friend was going to the front lines? How did she happen to be in exactly the right place just to casually see her in a line of soldiers and go, oh, hi, you're going off to the front lines? If they really were good friends, why didn't her friend tell her? You know, there's all of these sort of cascade of questions which surrounded each relatively casual beat of the storytelling that gave the impression of a shallow world around the characters and the events, rather than a deep and rich one that we hadn't fully glimpsed yet. And I think that that's the key to quick pacing in fantasy storytelling. You need to give people the impression that your fantasy table is full of wonderful details that we're never going to see, that we just get glimpses of and hint at the larger structure. If you're not hinting at a coherent structure behind your plot events, especially if you're rushing, you're going to lose people quickly. Yeah, there was another similar point that had me going, you have this midsection where I believe four people or so are showing up at Fetter Hill. They're bringing a sword, a shattered sword, for the Hammer of the North to reconstruct. And then the fight breaks out because they keep insulting the master and Bianca is like, Fuck all y'all, I'm having none of this. Fight, fight, fight. And post this, the Hammer of the North is poisoned by a sword. But before he actually passes away, he reveals to her, now that it's fully out that she's also centered, which to your point should have been obvious much sooner in her life. But he's like, we got to get to Atlas because there, centered are treated well. And I'm sitting here okay, so you've been just holed up in this little shit place your whole life instead of just seeking out Atlas where y'all's folks are respected and revered? Why? What's the reason? I felt like there was no solid explanation or excuse for them not just taking a couple of horses and get the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you're bringing up a child in a place where they're going to be hated and persecuted. There better be a very good reason that you discover in volume two plus for that. Otherwise, it's going to be another sort of weird plot end dangling around like a loose thread. Another thing is the sort of the ecology of the place doesn't really make sense. Like, there's this bit where they go to a place where there's nothing but grasslands with giant holes in, 
And that feels like a really cool image, but not one where the writer slash creator has thought about the land and thought about the relationship of the people with the land or how land gets created or farmed or any of those things. If these fields are lush enough to have grass growing over them for miles and they are perfectly flat with the occasional hole and this is an agricultural civilization, they would be covered in fields and those holes would have giant walls around them. It's world building for the sake of world building, where you think things are cool, so you put them in, but it's just a series of cool images rather than a, a thing that lives and breathes and talks to itself. Down that same line is the fact that in these giant holes are resources that are very precious. They're needed to reforge these wraith swords. And it doesn't really strike me as all that dangerous down there. They very capably go down, get the resources, and go back home again. These places would have been mind empty. Exactly, yeah. And we don't get a sense of the danger in the flatlands if there is danger. Obviously, the only danger seems to be that you can accidentally fall down a hole. Maybe there are predators there, but we never get that sense. And we also get a sense that this sea of grass is kind of as big as the literal sea, which is a very surreal thing. I mean, like, there's a there's a place in, in the world for kind of cool imagery. But um, yeah, I really do think if you're writing a fantasy, you have to think about the way that your world works. The more we talk about this, I really do think that step by blood is step is kind of everything that the Bird King just falls short of for me. Even though they aren't similar in the kind of story they're trying to tell, it also kind of is. Because this is a rather tropey story, and I don't mean that as an insult, it's just that some fantasies are told more times than others. And as I just said with the giant, quiet, goliath figure guiding the smaller, quite often, female counterpart, you have exactly that in Step by Bloody Step. And I try not to be that cunt who's like, mm, this did it better, because that's, that's disencouraging to hear. But it also is kind of hard not doing that when we've read something that did this, but managed to kind of thread a lot of the things that you're addressing now, where in Step by Bloody Step, you see the dangers, you see the hostility, you get a feeling that this is a world that is lived in, and it has immense challenges and tribulations to get through, while in Bird King, it's just like, you're supposed to just take it as matter of fact, because they're kind of exposition dumpingly telling it to you. Right, yeah, absolutely. And all the time in Step by Bloody Step, I got glimpses of that greater world, which I was deeply intrigued by. I wanted to know more about. It felt like I was being given glimpses of something coherent, but not quite enough glimpses to see the whole picture until it was revealed to me in, in various different ways. Whereas with this, I feel like I'm being given huge, almost artificial glimpses of something small that doesn't really fit together. It's hard, you know, it's hard to write a giant fantasy like that. In a strange way, sometimes the more you give away, the harder it is. But it's always the details that matter. You've got to sweat the details. And another kind of example of this is, uh, I'd strangely enough, just before reading this, I'd been watching a YouTube channel, which was sort of masters react to their craft in film. And it was a blacksmith reacting to sword forging scenes in various mm. different films. And it was really fascinating just getting a little bit of insight. And one of the things that the blacksmith mentioned was that no film that he'd ever seen had ever 100% got sword forging right and pointed out a bunch of inconsistencies and so on. And then there's a sort of an epic forging section in this, which had pretty much every error that he pointed out. Oh no. 
to play a little bit of devil's advocate, I do know there's a high percentage of people out there who just don't fucking care. They see this shit and they go, woohoo, that's fucking dope. Blacksmithing, am I right? And that's super valid. <laughs> it will always yeah. just be very annoying if you actually do know. And that's the kind of nitpicking that we do in this podcast. And I think it's the kind of nitpicking that, you know, the average Joe Schmo is not going to do. And that's hella valid. I can't stress that enough. Right. And from a purely storytelling perspective here, the only important thing about that sequence was that the sword got reforged. And I understood that. No problems at all. And I guess that's why you end up with inaccurate things in movies, because directors don't give a shit about it. They will literally be like, no, it doesn't look cool enough. We're going to do it the cool way. You know, that, like you said, very valid. I did have a question, however, mm -hmm. and this kind of weaves into the entire thing where I'm just sitting here more often than not, a little confused by the plot. Did you have either a theory or did you grasp the idea behind the bird, the skull bird that flies into the bird king's chest and then alives him, question mark? My guess was is it some sort of visual representation of a soul. Ah, okay. Like the Bird King's soul is still alive somehow or something like that. This definitely feels like the kind of fantasy where there are souls that inhabit things. Yeah, I mean, they are literal wraiths. That's how they're referred to as. That they're, if I recall this correctly, they are kind of bound in service to a ghoul and they can be like summoned to fight for him. What awakens them is their their weapon question mark right yeah that makes sense and there's definitely some longer term story building going on here that will clearly play off in volume two or volume three if you get that far it was good enough that when i got to the end i had some open questions that i'm still a bit bothered about not as in i think they're discontinuities or something i actually sort of i'm intrigued to find out more i think it's just that those qualities didn't outweigh the things that threw me out of the story sadly and in the end i didn't really care much about bianca and i wasn't sad when her master died <laughs> yeah this is where i want to stress Again, even though I know we already done it, but I want to stress it again because I, I don't like being overly critical, even though I feel our criticism comes from a fairly level-headed place. This isn't a bad comic. It's not a bad story. The art isn't shite. It's completely fine, but that also kind of weaves into a thing that I've repeated in the past that when something is quote-unquote just fine, I'm bored. Yeah, which is a real shame because when you get a lot of effort, a lot of time, especially with comics, because they do take so long to make, put into something, and it just leaves you slightly bored, even though you know technically it's all pretty good. It could be quite upsetting, actually. <laughs> As a creator, I find it upsetting. I worry that people are reading my comic feeling that way, and, and it makes me feel very insecure, but um, I guess that's just the way with writing sometimes. That's why I'm getting anxious as we're nearing the end of this recording is that again i draw no pleasure from being critical to borderline negative about something it gives me no joy especially not within my own field because again i can't stress enough that i recognize how time consuming how money heavy etc etc crafting a comic is from start to finish and more often than not, there's so much happening behind the scenes that we don't know about that is the reason why something is the way it is, which is why I also keep referencing. I am very inclined to believe that my some of my grievances comes from budgeting, and I will put that out there because the topic has never been fucking hotter. 
if you're the kind of person who thinks that $175 per page is good rating, you can actually stick a finger up your ass and sniff it afterwards and use that for entertainment for a while, because it isn't. <laughs> it isn't. Yeah. And I will fucking die on that hill publicly. I fucking hate it here. It is a bare minimum required to just get a job done and not die whilst you're doing it. That's what comics pay is like most of the time. It is, and that's why it gives me a foul taste in my mouth to be critical to a comic. I don't enjoy it because yeah. I recognize yeah. all of these pitfalls through how this was created. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and you don't necessarily have time to deeply research how forging works or to get so invested in your fantasy world that you know every single detail that the reader never sees. And I think that that's fine if it has to be like that. But at the same time, I think we, you know, we're also creators and when we create things even under incredibly restrictive circumstances like these we have to come up with our own best principles. And sometimes I think, ah, uh, comic's not for me, just topic-wise or, you know, character-wise or something. But then every now and again, I read something and I'm like, I wouldn't want to create this. As a creator, that's as close as I can get to something. That's not just like, I wasn't in the mood. <laughs> my biggest fear is that a creator will listen to this and be like, oh my god, who are these fucking schmucks? These right-ass cunts sitting here. And what are they doing, huh? <laughs> eh? They're just sitting here <laughs> spouting nonsense for fucking free. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's what we're doing. It, that's the whole job. It is, and you are more than welcome <laughs> to disagree with us. That's A-okay. If you want to run to the tattoos tomorrow and fucking tattoo, I fucking love Bird King all over your back, I wholeheartedly support yeah. it. Do it. Live your best life. It just, this wasn't for me, dude. It wasn't for me. Should we uh, jump over to what we're doing uh, next time, then? Next episode, we will be reading the first volume of Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Kui. And since the anime has just come out, we may be talking about the anime as well and potentially discussing the adaptation. We will obviously put up like spoiler alerts before the episode itself, so fear not. Mm, and looking forward to it. Yeah. Bye. Bye. In 2024, I would like anything else but the year to fuck me. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. <laughs> Snip this section. Yeah, this is like a... By all the people around her. Oh, sorry. I got a beep. <laughs> I thought someone was at the doorbell. <laughs> nope. Sorry, let me put my, put my phone on. Do not disturb. Unprofessional behavior, Paul. Unprofessional. <laughs> oh, terrible. Okay, right. It's on. Do not disturb. Okay, where was I? Um...